Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast from SDI, the home of spiritual companionship. I'm Matt Whitney. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org. joined today by Dr. Kenneth Porter. Dr. Porter is a spiritual psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who lives with his wife and practices in New York City. He has taught Buddhist insight meditation at the New York Insight Meditation Center, was a long-term student of the Kundalini master Chandrasek Haranand Saraswati, was president of the Association for Spirituality and Psychotherapy, and is an ordained teacher and minister of the Diamond Approach, the work of A.H. Almas. And Dr. Porter, it's a real honor to get to chat with you today. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here and did a very good job pronouncing the name of my Kundalini. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So we're here to talk with Dr. Porter about his book called Apollo's Liar, Not to be Confused with. L-A-I-R, but rather L-Y-R-E. And actually, Dr. Porter, I told you I was going to ask a different question to begin, but I'm not. I'm going to ask you about the title of the book. Could you tell our listeners why you chose to call your book Apollo's Liar and basically what it is covering? What's it about? So the full title is Apollo's Liar, the Art of Spiritual Psychotherapy. Apollo was or is maybe the Greek god of the sun, but he also was the god of music and the god of healing. And he played a lyre. A lyre is a little harp that you hold in your arms, or they used to do that anyway. So my thought was that what I do as a spiritual psychotherapist is similar to what the Greeks believed that Apollo did when he played his music, which was supposed to heal the soul. So that's the origin of the title. Thank you. The book, which I was honored to get to read portions of, is this really interesting outline of the theory and the practice of spiritual psychology. And you say in the book that this is for people who are curious about either spirituality or psychology. And that, as you just shared, it is in service of uplifting and soothing and helping with maturing and healing. And I found it really interesting how you drew all these connections between the modern concepts of psychotherapy and a lot of really relevant but ancient spiritual wisdom. So there's a lot of wells you're drawing from. Our listeners may not be familiar or may not be entirely sure what you mean when you say spiritual psychology or psychotherapy. Could you share a bit more about that term, please? Yes. So 
Nobody knows what this means. <laughs> it's a good question you're asking because I think I made up the term. <laughs> <laughs> Although there are probably people out there who use the term. So it has two parts, spiritual and psychotherapy. Psychotherapy, which was invented by Sigmund Freud 125 years ago, is based on the fact that when we talk to a loving and wise counselor or friend or minister or spiritual director or psychiatrist, when we talk to that person about our worries and concerns, in the process of talking, we discover things about ourselves that we didn't know. So a psychoanalyst says that means there are things in what we call the unconscious that are troubling us, but because they're unconscious, we don't know what they are and we can't solve them. So the idea is by talking to somebody who we feel is thoughtful and cares about us, those things come up from underneath where we've buried them, then we can understand them, then we can figure out better how to deal with them. So that's the psychotherapy part. The spiritual part, your listeners probably don't need me to explain, but I will anyway. Spirituality is one of those things that there's a hundred different definitions of, obviously. My understanding of spirituality is that it's a way of life which is based on reducing our self-centeredness and basically our selfishness and opening our heart to learn to be more loving toward those in our lives and ultimately toward everyone. So reducing self-centeredness, opening our heart, being more loving. So I try when I work with people to combine the psychotherapy part, which is tell me about yourself and let's find out what's troubling you that you haven't been aware of, and the spirituality part, which is basically, I'm going to try to help you become a more loving person. When I think about the people in my life who are wearing the hats of either a psychiatrist or a psychologist or that of a spiritual director, spiritual companion, there's an awful lot of similarities to, I think, what they bring into these spaces. But the training is quite different, especially if you are a psychiatrist and you are prescribing medication. There's different roads that lead into these spaces. What is it about the training of becoming a psychotherapist, a psychologist, that in your experience has helped you to become kind of uniquely positioned to help someone with their spiritual journey? Yeah, that's a good question. So the answer is not what you expect. Psychotherapist is a general term, as you probably know, and many different professions do psychotherapy. So psychiatrists do psychotherapy, psychologists, social workers, counselors, and so on. So a psychiatrist is unique because he's a physician, an MD. He can prescribe medication, all that kind of thing. Training to be a psychiatrist is actually a lousy training to be a psychotherapist because medical school trains doctors to be very, if I may say so, arrogant and think that they know everything 
and they tell their patients what to do and what not to do. And it's bad training to be a therapist, and it's bad training to be a spiritual director also. So when you're a psychiatrist, you have to overcome your training in order to learn how to be a good psychotherapist. So the way I learn to do what I do is through my own personal spiritual work. And that happened because when I was 42, I developed a heart problem, which fortunately turned out to be not dangerous. I had heard that meditation can help the heart. So I decided to learn meditation. I learned meditation with a psychologist who was like I am now. He was a virtual psychotherapist. And that launched me on this thing that we call the spiritual path. And so subsequently, I studied Buddhism. I taught Buddhism. I studied with that teacher in India who was a Kundalini master. And then I discovered this particular spiritual school that I'm a student in and an ordained minister in, which is called the Diamond Approach, which is a blending of Western psychology and Eastern religion. So that's how I got to where I am in a nutshell. In a resource that we have called Portrait Spiritual Director, we describe a spiritual director in the following way. Spiritual directors or companions support the unique spiritual journey of every individual. They are welcoming and present with those they companion, listening and responding without being judgmental. They are contemplative and honor silence as a spiritual practice. They are intuitive spiritual friends, accountable and compassionate, hospitable and open, loving, yet independent. And I'll also add in as you're speaking that I think so much of what spiritual companions do, and I love this metaphor, is they're holding up a mirror so that those they companion are seeing parts of themselves that they might not have seen before. How much of that description resonates with the kind of work that you do as a spiritual psychotherapist? About 143% of what <laughs> is what I do. And I should have asked you to send me that in advance. So when you asked me what I do, I could have said what you Because <laughs> you gave a much better description of it than I have given. So when you're a psychiatrist and a therapist, you don't think of it as a spiritual companion. Because when you're a psychiatrist, there's a slight differential of power in the situation, which you use to help the person heal. And spiritual companion sounds like you're 100% peers. So maybe 99% of what you just said is similar to what I do. But basically, you describe perfectly everything a spiritual psychotherapist does. Yes. I think in many ways, there is a peer-like element to the relationship. And in others, I think there can be an important difference, perhaps if nothing else, then the one doing the companioning or the directing may simply have some more life experience under their belt. Or sometimes we use the analogy of a mountain climber and they're sort of a guide. And they might say, I've been up this mountain before. I've gone up this route. And there's this one part where I really recommend you use this tool and this other part where we should rope up and sort of making some suggestions from experience. But you are right that there is not that more distinct, defined power imbalance there. 
You know, what you just said is very weird in a way that you won't know until I explain it to you. So that metaphor that you used about the mountain, I must use that identical metaphor at least six times a week. I always say, we're climbing a mountain, that's your spiritual growth path of transformation. And I know this mountain. I've been up and down this mountain a lot with many people. So very often we're going to come to a fork in the mountain on the path, and you're going to not know where to go. And I'm going to say, well, if you go to the left, that goes down and goes down into a very nice meadow, and then there's a swamp and so on. And if you go to the right, then that goes higher, and you'll learn more, and you decide what you want to do. So it's very funny that you use that metaphor because... That's exactly the way I see it. And another interesting thing, Frederica, is so years ago, I never heard the term spiritual director. Then I was doing a meditation retreat at a Catholic retreat center. But for some reason, somebody was talking about spiritual direction. So I started to learn about it. I got very interested in it. And in fact, just before talking to you, I remembered that I've been wanting to find out about Loyola's spiritual exercises for years. So I went and looked them up, and I saw all of Loyola's exercises, I mean, most of them, and I thought, this is really interesting. This is a Jesuit, a Catholic teacher. Yeah, to clarify for our listeners, this is St. Ignatius of Loyola that we're talking about. Yeah, and he's doing exactly the same thing as I'm doing except I call it spiritual psychotherapy, and he's calling it spiritual direction. And in fact, even the terms that Loyola used are very similar to the way I would think about it. Well, we, in the same way that you earlier described the umbrella term of psychotherapy, we're increasingly using this umbrella term of spiritual companion. And within that, there are a lot of different roles. There are chaplains, there's teachers, there's life coaches, there's spiritual directors, there's all sorts of folks. There's yoga teachers, there's meditation instructors, there's all sorts of folks, and we see them as part of this big family of spiritual companions on the journey. How do you know there's one other category, spiritual psychotherapist? Yes, yes. <laughs> Add that on in. I'm looking at your book here early on when you're talking about this central aspect of spirituality, that it's not really ultimately about experiences or not primarily, but it's about how these experiences transform our lives. And I see that being something that spiritual companions are doing is they are witnessing and sometimes helping to kind of midwife that transformation. It's interesting to me how so many of the things you're saying are similar to the things I've been saying to my patients for decades. So I often use that metaphor of the midwife, that a spiritual psychotherapist is helping the baby to be born. Now, who's the baby? The baby is the true spiritual self, the core spiritual self, or as we say in psychoanalysis, the true self. And it's the soul that is waiting to be born, but it's a baby in all of us to begin with. And so it doesn't know how to get born, and it needs a midwife, and then that's what I do, and that's what we all do. So that's a beautiful metaphor, actually. Yeah, this is exactly where I was going to take us next, because you outline also, in a very helpful way, this distinction between 
the ordinary self and the real self, which then may also be similar to, but not quite the same as the soul, at least in the way that Christians talk about the soul. Could you go a little deeper into this difference between the real self and the ordinary self? Yeah, so that's a very important thing for all of us. We're brought up, all of us, in our society in a certain way to develop a certain personality, a certain identity, a certain way of thinking about ourselves. And that's necessary for all of us. It helps society function in a coherent way that we all share certain ideas and norms and values and beliefs and orientations and so on. However, that ordinary self, that ordinary personality we have is not expressive of something deeper inside us, which people call different things. I think of it as the real self or the true self. Many people think of it as the spiritual self or the core self. It is, in my understanding, basically the same as the Christian concept of the soul. So the problem is that most of us are not brought up to know about the true self, the core spiritual self. The core spiritual self is complicated and tricky and You can't really build a society, at least so far, based on the core spiritual self. You have to get people to do things in a more conventional way. But there is a core spiritual self that, as we just were saying, is like a baby in our heart. It's waiting to be born in everyone. Or sometimes people say it's like a spark. In Judaism, they don't think of it as a baby. They think of it as a divine spark inside each of us. And the idea of the rabbi, the teacher, the spiritual director, is to blow on the spark. Mm. So comes a flame and a fire in our heart. And it's the fire that we use to go toward God and ultimately burn up our regular self so we can merge with God. So different people think of it in different ways. So spiritual psychotherapy helps people understand that it's fine to have a personality and to do everything we do in life and get married or not and work and make money and have a dog and that's all great that's very important but what's really going to make us happy is to connect to our spiritual self our core our soul so that's what i try to do and i guess that's what you guys do as spiritual directors and companions Yeah, we're all sort of tapping into the same wells, ultimately. The wells are sort of meeting together at some point. Support for this podcast comes from Siena Retreat Center. Are you passionate about the spiritual growth and transformation that comes from the practice of spiritual guidance? Siena Retreat Center, located on Lake Michigan between Chicago and Milwaukee, is seeking an experienced leader in the area of spiritual companioning. The full-time position of spiritual guidance coordinator involves the collaborative leadership of the center's two-year spiritual guidance training program. 
we invite you to explore the job description at www.siennaretreatcenter.org. I found myself really drawn towards this part of your book towards the end, the frontiers of spiritual psychotherapy. And you have these four sections on the healing crucible of spiritual couple psychotherapy, the underworld journey of depression as a spiritual teacher, in spiritual emergencies, psychosis and transcendence, and then Kundalini. And I found these chapters so interesting. In particular, I found myself thinking about the one on depression and the one on spiritual emergencies. So you write at length about depression and about how tapping into the faculties of the real self that we just talked about can help those struggling with depression find a way out. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of communion, not to be confused with the sacrament of communion, but this concept of communion and how spiritual companions might try to achieve communion with those new companions? Yeah, so that's my name for the kind of relationship between a spiritual psychotherapist and the person who works with him or her. So I call it communion. And it is interesting that it's the same word as the Christian sacrament, but it's a different thing, although it's probably not completely different. But that's a whole other long story that we don't have time to get into. So by communion, what I mean is that if I am a spiritual psychotherapist or I'm a spiritual director or I'm a spiritual companion, my idea is that I want to connect with my own soul, my own core spiritual self, my own true self. And when I talk to somebody, I want to be sitting in my soul. I want to be sitting in my heart, in my core spiritual center. If I'm doing that, then when I'm talking to the person who's working with me, without even trying to, I will create a spiritual field that will affect the other person. Now, partly, of course, it has to do with what I say. But the most important thing is what I call my presence. That means my being, who I really am as a person. And that will give the baby in the heart of the person who's working with me a chance to be born, or that will blow on the divine spark in the heart of the person who's working with me and help it become a spiritual flame that will take them to God as much as possible. So communion means that special time when I'm sitting in my core spiritual self in my heart, and you, as the person who's working with me, are also sitting in that place in your heart. And then there's a bond that develops between the two of us that is like a feeling of oneness. And then when we talk to each other, we're talking to each other from our hearts, not from our intellect. And that can lead to spiritual transformations. I think that will resonate very deeply with a lot of our listeners who probably experience that kind of communion in sessions, hope to. Let's talk very briefly about the chapter on spiritual emergencies, psychosis and transcendence. This is something I have started to learn more about recently, and I'm particularly interested in the ways in which a spiritual experience or a spiritual emergency 
might show up in a companioning session and the companion or director or therapist who is witnessing this does not know what to do and may by default very quickly want to assume that there is some psychosis and that this requires a referral to someone else. And you and others I've been encountering writing about this are encouraging us all to try and be very aware of when this is in fact something that is in service of a very important kind of transformation or some kind of transcendence. We talk a little bit about how this may present itself and what a spiritual companion who is not trained in psychology might notice or look for to properly assess what might be going on. Yeah, so that's a very good question, Frederica. And as you recognize, it's a complicated question. The basic problem, which you have referred to, is that we all have all kinds of spiritual experiences that look strange to people that are not familiar with spiritual experience. So, for example, in a Hispanic culture, when someone dies, it's not rare for that person to appear after their death, to appear to the members of their family to whom they were close. Now, if you tell that to an American psychiatrist, they think, oh, the person is having hallucination, that person is psychotic, I better give them a whole bunch of medication. But that's not what's going on. In that culture, after people die, it seems like they do sometimes appear in spirit form to the people they were close to. And that's not psychotic. It's often reassuring, though it's a beautiful spiritual experience. So there are many examples of that that you see. And for many years, I was one of the few spiritual psychiatrists in New York City So a lot of people would come to me who were having spiritual experiences and they'd been locked up and given medication because psychiatrists thought they were crazy. And they weren't crazy at all. They were hearing the voice of God. All right, some people actually can hear the voice of God or they can see the Holy Mother. I just saw the movie about the three kids in Portugal in 1917 that saw the Holy Mother repeatedly. So that looks like it's craziness. So you're asking, how do you tell the difference, really? The first thing I would say is, if you're a listener, if you're a spiritual companion or spiritual director, the most important thing is don't jump to conclusions. Don't assume the person talking to you is crazy. Keep an open mind. Listen to what they have to say. This is a distinction that psychiatrists make. If the person is really discombobulated by their experience, if they're tremendously anxious, if they're tremendously depressed, if they can't function, if they can't work, if they can't eat, if they're terrified, then that tells you that it's not just a spiritual experience, but something inside has been triggered that a professional person needs to deal with. If the person is basically more or less okay in their lives, but they're having some what they think are weird experiences. They're hearing spiritual voices, or they're having visions, or they're getting messages from higher realms, or they're having peculiar energy experiences, but they're basically doing okay in their life. They may be 
puzzled or confused or scared, then it's more likely to be just an unusual spiritual experience and not something that needs professional help. The problem is there are a lot of situations which are in the middle and are tricky even for a psychiatrist. So I'm kind of giving you the basic outline, but very often it's very confusing because people sort of have one foot in the world of spirituality and one foot in the world of some kind of psychiatric problem. The main thing is to keep our minds open. Mm -hmm. I think that's helpful advice. Yeah. Years ago, a woman came to me and she said, I'm having energy running up and down my spine, which is typical of what we call a Kundalini experience. And she said, you know, at night, I'm leaving my body and I'm going to a higher realm and I'm meeting with very advanced Jewish teachers. She wasn't Jewish. I'm meeting with very advanced Jewish rabbis who are teaching me spiritual wisdom. Now, if you tell that story to 100 psychiatrists in America, 99 of them are going to think this woman is loony. But she wasn't loony at all. That's what was actually happening. Her soul or spirit, whatever you want to call it, was leaving her body. That happens to people. That's not something wrong. A lot of people have that experience. And that in itself is a good example. People have out-of-body experiences, and a psychiatrist thinks, oh, that person's crazy. That's ridiculous. Millions of people have that experience. So that example of that patient that came to me, most people would think she leaves her body and she's going to heaven and she's being taught by dead people. Come on, that woman's nuts. Not at all. She was in a very beautiful place. So by the time she saw me, fortunately, I had learned enough so that I didn't just give her medication. But I listened to her story and I actually learned from her. That's another similarity with our craft as well. There's a lot of two-way learning, isn't there, that goes on. Yes, and that's a very important point. I learned a great deal about what we call spirituality from one of my patients whom I talk about in the book, who did have a psychiatric illness. She did have this illness that is called schizophrenia, for real. And she was a very spiritual person. She's Catholic. So in the course of her talking to me, She's been my patient for 30 years. She came when she was 20 years old, and she wasn't talking at all. And Eventually, we developed a relationship. So she said to me, well, there are demons that are attacking my soul, and they're trying to steal my heart. So that's pure 100% schizophrenia illness. So I listened to her, I gave her medication, and she kept talking to me, and she taught me that actually, that's not true. There are negative spirits out there. Now, not everyone believes that, but I came to believe that. And there were forces that were threatening her. And she learned that when these forces were attacking her, if she prayed to Jesus or she prayed to the Holy Mother, they would leave her alone. So that told me, hmm, I don't think this is just her schizophrenia. There's something else going on. And then she described to me at some point, how she talked to God. She talked to Jesus. She saw Jesus and she talked to Jesus. So I thought, yeah, sure. She talks to Jesus. She's sick. But I listened to her over many years. And I think she was actually talking to Jesus. Now, I'm not sure what that means. 
because that's not in my framework, like people talk to Jesus. But I learned from her. She said, yes, I see the Holy Mother, and the Holy Mother reassures me. And I thought, well, I, really? But I learned from her that there are a lot of things in life that I didn't understand that have to do with spirituality. So, yes, sometimes it's a two-way street, and we learn from the people who work with us. If we're open-minded and we have an open heart. Oh, it's refreshing to listen to a psychiatrist speak in that way about a willingness to learn from your patients and to be transformed. I think about the spiritual community I'm a part of. One of the core values is deep listening. And the way we define that is it's listening in a way that you are willing to be transformed by what you hear. You're willing to change, to be forever altered by what you hear. And you bring that kind of listening into a space. And I see you doing that. And I see the examples in your book of that, of this willingness to be transformed in your own journey by the patients that you see. That reminds me of a famous story of a psychiatric conference where many people were in attendance and everybody was talking about how the psychiatrist could help their patients. And finally, toward the end of the conference, one old man got up and stood on a chair and started screaming at everybody, we help our patients, but don't you understand, they help us. <laughs> That's not the way psychiatrists think. That's the truth. And every good psychotherapist knows what you just said. I know that every time my psychotherapy with someone is successful and they transform spiritually, the only way that happens is that they have affected me and I have also transformed spiritually. If I don't transform, they're not going to transform because it's not a one-way street. It's always a two-way street if we're talking spiritually. So I 100% agree with your orientation. In fact, it's very interesting to me talking to you how unexpectedly similar everything I do is to everything you're talking about, being a spiritual companion and a spiritual director. I feel like we're basically talking about the identical thing, mm -hmm. and it applies to me. I'd be curious to know for our listeners how much of what they're hearing from where you're sitting as a psychologist is likewise resonating. We do have a little public service announcement. We do have a forum, listeners, for the podcast where you can always go and drop in your questions, your comments about what you're hearing here. So that would be really interesting. To what extent are you sensing the similar resonance between these two fields that aren't perceived as overlapping all that much? I'll tell you something also interesting related to all this. So I had a very bad back problem. And many years ago, after I saw a million doctors and they didn't help me, I went down to Brazil to talk with John of God in Abadena in Brazil. And as you may know, John of God was a healer, and he had a Catholic center. And in his center, every picture on the wall was a picture of either of Mary or Jesus, and they were involved with the healing. So I came back from there, and I'm Jewish, and I've been the teacher of Buddhism, though so I'm not Christian, I'm not Catholic. So all of a sudden, I started listening to Ave Maria, but I couldn't stop listening to it. I became obsessed with that song, and I would listen to it hours every day. And then I got a statue of the Holy Mother, 
which is sitting on my desk right here. So my patients come in and they look at Mary and I'm also holding a rosary in my hand while I'm working with people. So they look at Mary and they say, is that who I think it is? You have a statue of Mary on your desk and you're a psychiatrist? And I say, yeah, it's Mary, the Holy Mother. What's the problem? She's looking over me. She's helping me. I pray to her. You pray to Mary? Yes, I pray to Mary all the time. And fortunately, my patients know I'm a little kooky in these regards. So when I say all this, they're like, oh, okay, that's the way he is. Did you resolve your back pain? No, unfortunately. Mm. And I had an operation which made it worse. And I pray to Mary frequently to heal my back. And we'll see what happens. I would love for you to speak a bit about kundalini power, kundalini awakening. For me, it's a term I have heard for a while. I feel like I'm hearing it with increasing frequency. I'm finally meeting people who are sharing about their experiences. I'm very interested, but it's still a very new and mysterious thing for me. Could you share a little bit about this and... Maybe what, if anything, spiritual companions can do if they are encountering someone who is using that term, is sharing that that's part of something they're experiencing. So here's my history with it. About 20 years ago, I developed strange symptoms in my body. My feet were burning all the time. And in the center of my body, it was burning in my pelvic area. And I thought there was something wrong with me medically, but I'm a doctor and I know that there's no illness that causes that. So eventually I called different people and I figured out that it was this thing called Kundalini. And eventually I found a Kundalini master who worked in the United States and in India and I studied with him and he helped me with it. So Kundalini is a, I'm going to speak in a simplified form about it. So if there's anybody out there that really knows Kundalini, forgive me, I understand I'm not speaking exactly precisely, but I'm doing it to make it easier to understand. So Kundalini is known about in India, particularly also in China and in Japan, so in the Eastern countries that have strong spiritual traditions. What Kundalini is, it's a specific kind of very powerful energy that exists in everyone, in our bodies, and it exists in a very compact form, curled up, that is the way they describe it, at the bottom of our spine. Sometimes, if a person is doing spiritual practice, a lot of prayer, a lot of meditation, working with crystals, or sometimes if a person has a shock to them, like they lose somebody very close to them, this energy in the body wakes up, as they say, and the energy starts to move up the spine. And eventually it moves up to the top of the head. And what it feels like, what people describe, is that they feel like electricity is running up and down their spine. Or sometimes people say, I feel like I've just been plugged into an electric socket. But I didn't have that particular version of Kundalini, but that's the most common version that people feel that electricity is moving up and down their spine and they're hot and they're cold. And it's very frightening 
because it's very, very intense. Now, what happens with Kundalini energy is it's the body's way to heal ourselves physically and spiritually. So this energy will spontaneously go up the spine and it will gradually heal various problems in the body and it will heal us spiritually, meaning basically it will open our hearts and make us less self-centered. The problem is that people get freaked out by Kundalini. They get frightened of it and they go to doctors and doctors give them medication, which makes it worse. No medication helps with this thing. I've tried everything. Nothing helps with it. So if somebody is describing experiences like this, if you're a spiritual director or a spiritual companion, the main thing is, number one, don't get scared yourself. Don't think something's wrong with the person. Number two, don't think you're supposed to do something to help them because that's wrong. The single most important thing you can do as a listener is reassure the person that there's nothing wrong with them, this is normal, this can heal them, to relax, not to fight it, and not to resist it. That's the most important thing, because it's very painful to have this electricity shooting up and down your spine. So people resist it, and they want to take drugs, and they want to drink alcohol, and they want to run around and do everything to get rid of it. And that makes it worse, because this energy knows what it's doing. And if you fight it, it will fight you back double. Mm. And it's more powerful than our egos are, mm. than making itself. So the most important thing to tell anyone with Kundalini is don't be afraid. This is normal. This is okay. This will heal you. Try to relax. Try to let it do its thing. Don't tighten up your body against it. Try to relax. Let it do its healing. This is spiritual power. That's really what it is. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. I want to tell those listening to this podcast how much I really did enjoy perusing this book and reading portions of it quite carefully. It's very, very accessible. I found myself sort of flying through the chapters and finding plenty that was familiar and a lot that was new and interesting. And I appreciate the anecdotes, the illustrations you use, and again, how you really draw from a lot of really powerful ancient spiritual wisdom and bring it and kind of marry it with these concepts of modern psychology. For the listeners who would love to get a hold of a book, where do you recommend that they go purchase a book? People can buy it on Amazon. You can get it for some reason that I'm trying to figure out. When you go on Amazon, it doesn't always give you the option to get it as an ebook. I'm working on that. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I don't know why. So if you want to get it as an ebook, you have to put in the title of the book, Apollo's Liar, The Art of Spiritual Psychotherapy, ebook, and then it will give you that option. So I'm just mentioning that. I'm working on turning it into an audio book, but I don't have that yet. Dr. Porter, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. What an honor to get to speak with you. Federica, it's been really a great pleasure. Of course, if you're an author, you do these things to let people know about your book. But it's been unexpectedly enjoyable for me to just chat with you about spirituality and spiritual direction and psychotherapy. So it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for being such a warm and human and spiritual interviewer. 
If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word about the life-giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your favorite app. You could give us a like or even write us a review. Thank you for listening. This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org. SDI is the home of spiritual companionship. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org.